0: Hi there, welcome to Green Queen in Conversation, a podcast about the food and climate story. I'm Sonali Figueres, your host and the founder and editor-in-chief of Green Queen Media, where I lead all of our food and climate reporting. I'm excited to kick off this new podcast series exploring cultivated meat, a future food technology on a mission to produce animal protein sustainably. For the show's first season, we're talking to the titans of the industry, the OGs, if you will, and asking the hard questions about one of the most exciting food and climate innovations of our time. For this next episode, I speak to Sandhya Sriram, co-founder and CEO of Singapore-based cultivated seafood company, Shiok Meats. Sandhya is a huge inspiration to women founders everywhere, especially in Asia, where there are very few globally renowned brown female CEOs in deep tech. Sandia is a strong leader with a formidable voice, and she has paved the way for cultivated meat founders after her. She took on a major challenge, scaling cultivated crustacean lines in order to help find a solution to our ever-growing demand for shrimps, crabs, and lobsters amidst the overfishing crisis and the depletion of marine environments. Both she and her company are pioneers and helped put Singapore on the cultivated meat map. In our conversation, which was recorded as part of a webinar series I do with the City University of Hong Kong. I really appreciate how open and transparent she is. As well as her insights and expertise, she shares a great deal about the obstacles she has faced so far in her journey and her determination to move forward seeps through. It's a must listen for those looking for inspiration from a fearless and too rare female voice of change. And I have no doubt you will leave empowered. Enjoy the show. I'm super thrilled to be here with um, one of the pioneers of cultivated meat and seafood and an industry friend, Sandhya. Hi, welcome.
1: Hi, Sanali. Pleasure to be here. And hi to everybody here. Yeah.
0: I really appreciate you, you doing this. You're always so generous with your time and your expertise and, and your leadership. And, you know, I, I'm going to start out the session by um, asking you, you've been one of the pioneers. As I said, you were one of the early people in the space, and definitely in Asia, one of the first faces that anyone saw. So I think it would be really helpful to start with kind of how are we doing in in terms of cultivated meat and cultivated seafood in Asia, but also globally. Um, and are we where you thought that we would be when you started? And and kind of what's your what's your outlook in terms of timeline for the next few years? Sure, that's a that's a lot of complicated questions.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) dive in. (laughs) Yeah, no, I would say I think I think with any startup, any disruptive industry, any novel industry, um, you expect more downs than ups. And honestly, when I started in twenty eighteen in this industry. I did not expect things to go as well as it went for specifically Shiok Meats and the way Singapore brought up the the food story 30 by 30 and the amount of funding that went into this industry. And I'm not going to say easy capital raising, but definitely positive capital raising, like really good investors coming in and, you know, believing in this and so on. So I did not expect it to go that positively or that well um, as, as, as we started the company, so I was expecting more down days, very hard, hard days to fundraise, and you know, sort of um, so on. But in fact, even with the pandemic, fundraising wasn't that bad. Uh, even with investors, you know, looking at you only on Zoom and not being able to taste your product or visit your facility. So, but this was the time when capital was easily available. There was plenty of capital. Capital was easily available, and everybody was into food tech, right? But I also tell this, and I used to tell this from day one, the world has a cycle of five years. A Mm -hmm. new technology or industry is extremely sexy for five years. And then after that, it doesn't go away. It's still there. But something else is sexy after that. And when we started in 2018, around 2019, food tech became extremely sexy in Asia. Be it your launch of Impossible, Beyond, around the time in 2018, then Omni, and then a lot of cultivated meat companies coming up, we coming up, Singapore announcing the 30 by 30 story. 2020, they're approving the cultivated product, the first cultivated product. So everything was extremely up for this industry. And we are sort of in the tail end of that five years as you can see. And it, that has come with market changes, funding issues, companies not able to scale, regulatory, you know, going the right way, but still not many companies have got the approval So I would just say I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised where we are. I'm not surprised the challenges we have faced. I'm not surprised that we have seen the the bad days and the down days. Um, What I am very mindful of is over-promising by the industry, over-promising by the research that we're doing or over-promising by companies. I think the market's correcting itself right now. And we're all, I'm going to say we are all in the industry, keeping it truthful right now. But that also comes with the caveat of when you're fundraising, you can't tell an investor that you will make money for them in 20 years down the line. You have to have some sort of a projection in place for them to see their return on investment. So it's a quite a complex uh, way where ha- on how you talk about timelines, when you launch, when you'll be revenue generating, but I'm not surprised as to where we are. The future of Alt protein is 100% there. I don't think it's ever going away. But the next few years are all about who can make it. uh, Consolidation. Unfortunately, some companies dying and some technologies dying. But all of that is part of any industry. It is what it is. Um, You can't expect all hundred companies to do well if they start in an industry. So the the survival of the fittest, essentially. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's let's kind of like give the audience a a few facts. So you know, cell cell based. Which is also in the industry, like they like to call it cultivated, is basically this technology called cellular agriculture. And it's one of the three main pillars of alternative protein, although now there are many more. And out of uh, a thousand or so old protein companies, I would say there's like a hundred or so cell-based companies. And so it's it's very interesting to hear you say that you know you didn't think it would go as well as it did. I think it's also kind of fair to say that there was probably a little bit of hype, there was also probably a lot of capital and interest in a field that, let's face it, most of us didn't really understand five years ago and didn't really know about. But I mean, would you, in in terms of concrete predictions, and I know, you know, predictions are a, a fool's business, but just to understand from someone like you who's like right in the space, like, do you anticipate there being more companies being founded in Cultivated, And do you anticipate um, more of those companies to be in Asia? Or do you, you spoke of consolidation, or do you think that right now, you know, people are not going to take the the plunge for a cultivated company and and just kind of, you know, figure out what's going on in the industry, Um, you know, with the other added kind of observation that it seems like there's also a lot more um, kind of, I would say, cultivated agriculture, support companies coming into the space like bioreactors or creating a medium or things for serums right so I mean do you see more action happening or do you just think that it's going to be a bit quiet um in terms of companies? yeah
1: I don't foresee many companies starting up now especially okay. with the markets now and I think the whole industry is going through a bit of a skepticism to an in, in to an extent. Like, Um, with the scale and the issues that we're facing in funding and so on. So I don't foresee too many companies starting new, but I do foresee ancillary companies starting. Like, for example, you mentioned media, bioreactors, infrastructure. I foresee a lot more contract manufacturing organizations being set up for scale up and Mm -hmm. for infrastructure for production. And I also foresee a lot more food, like traditional or established food companies coming into this space via consolidation. So that's what I am sort of forcing for the next decade or so.
0: Yeah, so that's really interesting, like really quickly building on that. One thing that I noticed about cultivated um, seafood, because there's your self-yuck meats and then there's aval meats, is that it's one of the few subsectors of all protein where we've seen big food in Asia, big seafood specifically, right, get involved. So you see kind of Vinh Huan in Vietnam and Thai Union, which is like Pan Global, but also yeah. kind of Thailand um, headquartered and, and, and CP Foods. Um, you see them getting involved in cultivated yeah. And I'm just like, I'm really interested in that because you don't see as many um, big meat companies in Asia getting involved in cultivated meat. So what what's different? And And also just add to that, like if you were speaking to investors right now, and you needed to convince them about why why should they still be looking at this state? Like, what you said that for you, all protein is is not going to go away. Like, what yeah. happened? To change.
1: Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, it's a good question. So yes, uh, traditional or big meat producers haven't really gotten into the Asian side, but the Western meat companies have, like Tyson and Cargill, right? And right. And right. I was so saying- they have in the West. Right. But that's also because if you look worldwide, seafood production is mainly in Asia, whereas meat production is actually more in the West or even meat consumption is more in the West. If you look at the numbers, seafood is the most consumed protein in this part of the world and most produced in Asia. So you have the big leagues like Thai Union, CP, Winhuan, all of them here. And it's interesting because these companies, when they approached us or when we approached them, They said they understand that technology is the only way that they can um, keep their business long-term, the way they can live up to the demand and the supply chain issues, that they can make sure that their businesses are still alive in 100 years to come. They always know that disruption and technology is what's going to happen. A simple thing, right? Uh, One of the companies that, uh, that we were working with, and they are our investor as well, they initially used to do proper traditional fishing and everything was hand done like manual right they realized 10-20 years down the line okay this is not going to work because we are producing a lot more we are you know we have larger fish farms everything has to be automated now so they set up automated lines for everything from the you know sort of uh, de-heading the fish to like de-scaling them to like processing them packaging them all of that and I've gone to their production facilities. extremely impressive it's fully automated very less manpower very clean and very well done but they also know that may not be enough to supply to the growing population the growing demand in the future given that there's only so many fish farms you can set up there's only so much animals so many animals in the ocean so they realized okay plant-based is a way to go cultivated is a way to go so why not we explore those technologies but they are not able to innovate internally. So they started investing into companies like us. And then eventually the idea is for them is to use us as a production hub and mm-hmm. they will do the distribution and the sales, which is exactly what we are looking for also. We are more okay. of the technology people. We are not looking to sell our products large scale. At least I can speak for Shiok Means. Our idea is to license out the technology so that food companies like Thai Union, CP, any other seafood company Can use it in the future to actually produce seafood the way we do
0: yeah absolutely and like they get to do what they're good at right which Mm -hmm. is logistics sales marketing and you get to do what you're good at right it's essentially like and you see this in a lot of industries where they're like sort of outsourcing the r&d to some extent yeah um so um i'm gonna let The others follow up later with more questions that are specific to the business, but I kind of want to take things um, back up to a more general level. Um, You recently opened up in a LinkedIn post a couple of weeks ago that was very moving, very honest, very transparent um, about the challenges that you faced as a South Asian woman founder in Asia, in a deep deep tech space, and specifically in the cultivated meat and seafood space. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, the post and some of the challenges that you faced on your journey and what's been the hardest part. And, and you know, how were you thinking when you when you wrote that post? So I have a
1: rule. I don't post anything when I'm emotional, when I'm angry, when I'm bitter, when yeah, I mean, all those emotions pass through and it's very easy to get on social media to just express everything at that given point. But you're not thinking straight when you're extremely emotional. So I have a rule that I will always think, I will res- retrospect, I will take a few weeks and then I will post something. And anything that I post is well thought of. It's not done in a hurry. It's um, I write it, I read it, I go through it, I go back and edit it. And then, you know, I, I'm a very... I don't want to hurt anybody. That's my ultimate aim at the end of the day. But I also want to be sure that I can tell what is my opinion. And I don't think everybody needs to have the same opinion or agree with me or disagree with me. I think most of them will disagree with a lot of things that I say also. But it's my point of view. And I want to make sure that I'm able to voice it because I also realize there are 500 people that are not voicing it and they're struggling with the fact that they have to keep it within themselves. So I'm also mouthing the 500 people that are probably going through the same thing that I'm going through. So that's sort of it. And over time, I've realized that people actually appreciate my candidness and openness. It's not very easy as an Asian to do that. Actually, in Asia, it's not very well appreciated. Um,
0: in it fact, when inspires I, me uh, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so i did the very... I think Asian women were taught, you know, not to, not to share our feelings in a public forum. I mean, it's the opposite. We're taught to kind of, you know, prepare a careful um, of, 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 you know, positivity.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always, I've been told by a lot of people in Asia that don't share your troubles, like share only the good things. And I said, well, that doesn't inspire anybody. You have to, you know, when people say on Instagram or social media, we show only the good part of our lives and we don't show the bad part. I'm like, share everything, right? Like, especially if you're an entrepreneur and people are inspired by you, they should know what you're going through all always, like all, all the things the bad, the good, the ugly, the best, the better, and everything. And like I said, I don't post when I'm bitter, angry or emotional. So I think a lot. So that post took me three hours to write. And um, it took me a lot of editing. It took me a lot of back and forth. It took me a lot of things like, should I do it? Should I not do it? What will that person think? What will this person think? What will investors think? What will the media think? All of that. And then I said, you know what? I need to listen to myself for once. And then let's just do it because I have things to say. And it is honest things that I've been going through. And I personally put it there. It's my opinion. It's my experience. It's personal. And it doesn't have to essentially agree with all of you. But certain parts of it can agree with you. Certain parts cannot agree with you. It's fine. That is what it is. And I would be happy to read somebody else's thoughts as well, running a company. It's not easy running a company of 60 people, then letting go of 30 people. Not easy raising $30 million. Not easy being a pioneer. You know, pioneer is used as a positive word. Actually, for me, it's a negative connotation. It's like, oh, my God, you're the first. And that means you have to break a lot more barriers and a lot more glass ceilings and a lot more issues over there. Essentially, I'm a very resilient, very strong person. I can tolerate a lot, but that doesn't mean I'm not human, right? So that post was about being human and being vulnerable and also telling the world that I may look extremely strong, but I'm human also, I have emotions also. And these are my thoughts from my point of view. and yeah, it is what it is. If you don't like it, don't read it, right?
0: Right. And in the post, you know, a couple of things were were kind of p- picked out by the media as as a big part of the news, which was one, you know, you've you've made some cuts to your team. Um, yep. and, and I and you know, you're adapted to a new environment of of less fundraising, maybe less hype. Yep. And two, the second mm-hmm. thing that I think really came out of that was that, you know, for, for five years, you've been working on um, scaling the cell lines for the crustaceans that you're working on, so lobster, shrimp, and crab. And that, is, that has continued to be very, very challenging.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, so I think it took us, I think around last year, we realized, okay, seafood is going to take longer than what it is. And by then, we had already acquired the red meat company, Gaia Foods. And honestly, when we acquired Gaia Foods, it was strategic, it was opportunistic, but it was also plan B for us from day one. You know, it was the fact that, okay, seafood is going to take time. And to give a background to everybody listening here, seafood in general doesn't have any background research. Like if you go to PubMed or you go to Google, you can't really find any research on stem cells or seafood because stem cell research was done on animals that are closer to humans like mammals so that you understand human biology for human diseases and cancer treatment and all of that. So nobody really looked at stem cells from shrimp. Like, why would you do that? Shrimp shrimp is not closer to humans anyway. So when we started Shioke, it was a clean whiteboard. As a scientist, that's super exciting because that means you can make new discoveries, new IP, new patents, all of that. But that's also not the best start for a startup or a company, which needs to make money in, in the three years, five years, 10 years, whatever it is. So I think we went into it, we we went into it knowing that it's gonna take time, but we thought it would be about four or five years till we figure it out. But last year, it was the fourth year, and we said, okay, let's take a pause here. We have tried as much as we can with scale and it's not working. We are facing some issues that we cannot predict that we would face because unless you scale up to a certain extent, you will not know. Only when you reach that destination, you know there's something wrong there. And then you have to figure out a different path to go, or, you know, and so on. So we said, okay, we went two steps forward, but we also went six steps backward. So let's put a pause there. Let's figure out that first step or second step again. But in the meantime, we are a startup. We have raised cash. We are answerable to our investors and the stakeholder community in general. Let's try to see what else can be accelerated. We thought of many other things that we could do with our technology, but then we said, we have red meat. Red meat is a more established, studied technology. There are many companies that are doing red meat closer to commercialization. So why not push that? Even though it's not the most competitive, most you know, most unique technology, let's do that first. In the meantime, let's figure out seafood. Nobody's stopping seafood. We are not stopping working on seafood. We just need more time. And so that was a conscious decision that we made in the company to see what can be our first product survival of the company is very important. For me, it came to a point where as a CEO and a founder, I was like, should I run a company for X amount of time with 60 people? Should I run it for 10 X amount of time with 10 people? So I would choose the latter, right? I want the company to survive, the business to survive, the the technology to survive. So it, it has been hard. It has been extremely hard, as you know, from my LinkedIn post. But I think at the end of the day, the, my fiduciary duty is to the company and the business, so I will make what is most the, the the decision that I make is to the company, not for me, not for individuals. It's for the whole as a company.
0: Thank you, thank you for your honesty, and that's that's really
1: that's that was that was great.
0: I really appreciate it. Yes. Yeah, so while awareness of plant-based meats around and brands like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat has, I mean, really never been higher consumer demand has slowed of late. So why do you think that is? And also, I really wanna get from you a sense of how are we gonna scale cultivated meat?
1: Sure, thanks for that. So first coming to, I think, um, the whole plant-based debate, I guess. So um, I think for me specifically, um, this whole industry is less than a decade old. So, you know, we didn't get smartphones in just a decade, it took more than two decades to get smartphones, electric cars took a couple of decades to get there. So I think we're just at the start of the industry. So I think it's too early for us to make up our mind on what's the end of it, because we have just started. I think every company, every version one, version two of products are never going to be the best. But the key is for those companies and entrepreneurs to listen to the consumers as to what they want, what it is, and so on. At the end of the day, it's food. Food is emotional. Food is not a product that we just buy. Food is something that we create memories with. It's part and parcel of our life. We eat it twice or thrice a day. It's emotional. It's important. And it's very price sensitive at the same time. In fact, what we have looked at is we have found out that when consumers think about food, the first thing they think about is taste. Then it's price. Then it's nutrition. Then it's sustainability and impact sustainability and impact is never the first thing that anybody thinks about everybody thinks about taste and familiarity with taste and what I mean by that is whenever somebody asks this is your cultivated shrimp exactly the same as traditional shrimp I'd, I'd say I'd like to say that it's exactly but I don't think I can ever make an exactly similar shrimp to traditional shrimp even in traditional shrimp shrimp A versus shrimp B is never exactly same like there is difference but only super tasters can you know taste that it's not like regular consumers can but if i give you a shrimp from cultivated technology and it tastes like chicken you are not going to eat my product right it has to be familiar to you it has to taste like shrimp it has to look like shrimp it has to feel like shrimp it has to smell like shrimp so i think at the end of the day this whole industry needs a little more patience a little more openness and a little more time from the consumers from the industry from the investors from the whole market Because we are working in an industry that's multi-trillion dollars. It is not going to change overnight. And we are trying to change essentially people's habits, like daily habits of buying, eating, consuming. It is going to take a while. So I think I will stop there for your first question. For your second question, scale, again, it ties back to the fact that the cultivated industry is actually less than a decade old. It started off in 2014 with the first burger that was made for $300,000 by this a Dutch professor. And the first company was founded only in 2014 or 2015. So what I see is this industry will definitely scale when I would say in the next two decades is what it's going to be. It's not going to happen in the next three to five years. It's going to take 10 to 20 years to get there. But I don't see us not scaling. So I hope that answers.
0: All right, so given the disruption potential of the cultivated meat industry, What do we do about the traditional farmers, the ones that are currently making a living from conventional forms of agriculture? How do we support them? How do we help them through this transition?
1: Sure. Actually, first thing first is the percentage of traditional farming is much, much, much lower nowadays because of the invention of factory farms, for lack of a better term. So that's first. But I am extremely mindful of these farmers because their livelihoods depends on what they're doing the idea is not to disrupt these traditional farmers. In fact, the idea is to enable them or empower them with better technologies. And as part of that, um, I I don't wanna talk too much about it because it's not my company, but you can go Google Respect Farms. So they are essentially a, a, a group of people or a collective in the Netherlands that are essentially working with these traditional farmers that you're talking about to set up cultivated farms in their land itself. So they have managed to convince three very large or very traditional farms, pig, um, if I'm not wrong, they're pig and beef farms to actually, uh, pork and beef farms, to actually give them 5% of their land to work with companies like us to set up cultivated farms there. So this is a first start. I think it's not been easy. It took about a year to even convince those three farmers. Um, But then it's a lot of, education of them and explaining to them that we are not out there to get them or to close them down. We are there to enable them, educate them with a better technology. Because at the end of the day, like I mentioned to Sonali, we are the technology people. They know how to sell products. They know how to distribute it. They know their consumers. So we want to work with them to make it happen. Is it going to happen overnight? Not really. It will, it is a, it will take a decade or so to transition into that as well. And also, it will happen only when we are at scale. There is no point trying to convince all traditional farmers now itself because we don't have the tech to scale yet. They also have to see the scale and we have to be comfortable showing them the scale to get there.
0: So whenever you're introducing new types of food and food technologies, food neophobia is a major challenge. And a lot of folks are simply just not willing to try foods they're not familiar with, which I'm sure you know. So how do you think Think through how to help these kind of consumers overcome this neophobia.
1: Education, 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 nothing else. They have to, companies have to be extremely transparent, patient, and try to educate every consumer, explain to them in the language that they understand. You cannot talk about a deep technology biotech product to a normal consumer in all the scientific jargon. It doesn't help at all. It scares them even more but you also don't dumb it down so dumb that you think that the consumers don't understand anything. You have to find that middle point where they understand a little bit of technology, but they also understand that this is food. And honestly, to tell you the truth, most of the products we eat now are not as natural as we think they are. They are processed in a facility. They are made in a food manufacturing facility. They are researched in a lab before they make it to a, a supermarket shelf, right? So. I think when you put that things into perspective, one of the things that was quite interesting for me when I started this company was people were like, oh, stem cells and meat. And I said, well, you are eating a piece of meat now. Do you know what it's made up of? And they said, "Mm, tissue. And I said, "Okay, what are tissue made up of? And I said, it's made up of cells and stem cells. They were like, oh, okay." Then, you know, you see the the basic things that you try to explain to them and you break it down for them, they actually get it. So it's not about explaining your tech in the most scientific jargon. It's about making them comfortable and then data. You have to have data. You have to have analytics and data to show them what you're telling is truthful and what you're telling is actually tested and you have numbers to support. So I think, and like I said, it's changing a habit. So it's not going to happen overnight. It will happen over time. And also, I think most of the companies that are working on newer solutions for food are working on it for the future generation. So it's time now to educate the younger population, like the school students and so on, and make them understand that this is not so unnatural. It is part of life, and this is what they
0: are going to be consuming in the future as well. Do you think that people feel a kind of a fear when presented with the idea of eating cultivated meat? Have you found that in your experience? I also want to understand better from you, what's the total footprint of growing cultivated seafood? How does it compare to, let's say, traditional fishing in the in in the wild or fish farming and aquaculture?
1: Sure, I think for the first question you basically answered it as well, Sonali, by explaining that it's not lab grown, it is actually cultivated, and it's made in a food safe manufacturing facility, which is where most of our food products are made right now. So I think, you know, lab grown has always had, uh, it always sort of makes my one eye twitch when somebody says lab grown. So it's sort of like, no, it's not lab grown. It was done, research was done in the lab, but it's grown in a food safe manufacturing facility where most of your products are actually manufactured right now in terms of food. So I see yeah. that he's um, has also acknowledged that. So yes, there is an yuck factor. Let me be open and honest about it, right? And and honestly, the consu- and I say this with a lot of um, consciousness but a consumer is definitely the king and the queen Um, They are, you know, you can have a great product, a great technology, a great company, well-funded, but if a consumer is not buying your product, that that technology doesn't work. It is what it is, right? So at the end of the day, the consumers are the king and the queen, but they also need to be fed the right information and they need to be given the most transparent information and the most clear information that they can have. Um, Like I said, food is an emotion. It's a habit. It's not going to change overnight. There is an yuck factor. But then, like I said, when you break it down and you say, what is your current meat made up of? It is actually made up of stem cells, cells and tissue. And that's exactly what we're growing. That's why companies like us are open to having people look at our manufacturing facilities. In fact, when we build a large scale manufacturing facility, we're gonna have a viewing gallery for people to come over like public school children to come over and see how we do it. So there's absolutely nothing to hide. You can actually see the manufacturing process and get over that yuck factor hopefully, and then taste it and see that it actually tastes very similar to your traditional product. And hopefully that'll change the mindset. For the footprint, um, so there are various studies done by uh, market research companies. I'm sure a few have been published on Green Queen as well. Uh, The Good Food Institute has done. At this point, it's all predictions and projections because none of us are at large scale. We don't have real numbers to compare to the traditional industry. But just based on projections, and I would say really truthful projections, not over-promised, not over-projected, really truthful production, uh, projections, it shows that the uh, cultivated industry will be anywhere between 30 and 40% more efficient than the uh, traditional industry in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, the land use, the water use, the energy use that we use. And I'll tell you why. It's not because, oh, our technology is great, everything is great and we can do it. It's because we don't have to grow the entire animal, which means we grow meat in lesser time because we don't have to grow the entire animal. Example, a lobster takes anywhere between one to two years to reach its full size and then you capture it, then you kill it, then you take out the meat and you eat it. We can make that same amount of meat in six to eight weeks. So just think about the amount of water, energy, land that we'll use in six to eight weeks compared to a year or two years. So just based on those two numbers alone, we can say that our footprint will be much lower than the traditional industry.
0: So cultivated meat really changes how we produce an animal. The, the concept of slaughter is removed, really. So does this process of cultivated meat change our emotional connection to food And how does it impact traditions like, for example, halal and kosher, whereby how the animal is killed is at the heart of how to define these concepts?
1: For me, honestly, like I said, this technology and this product is for the future generation. And when I asked my son, who's about nine, when I asked him when he was seven, where does your meat or fish come from? He said, from the supermarket shelf. So that's his emotion, right? So his emotional connection to food is from a restaurant or a supermarket. In fact, I had to take him to a farm to like show him that this is where your milk comes from and this this is where your meat comes from. Um, I think that question from Nick holds good for our our generation or probably like the next generation. But the ones after that, the younger ones, I don't think they have as much an emotional connection to food as we think we do. Um, We have it because we have seen animals or we have had farms where we have had animals and then we have. You know, use them for our food produced. I don't think the younger generation is having access to that. For them, it comes out of a carton or a box or a, a supermarket shelf. That's pretty much what it is. So, like I said, it's a habit, yes, but it's also a new habit for the future generation. In fact, one of the talks that I attended, I think an entrepreneur was saying that eventually, in about 50 years' time, it will be in history books that meat came from dead animals what we are doing now is what will be the new what will be what the younger generation or the newer generation that is probably not even born yet will actually only know that meat comes from a cultivator
0: or a bioreactor but they'll know that in
1: history it used to come from animals
0: how has shiok meat influenced other companies in the food space to create change what do you feel your legacy is in that sense
1: Okay, I don't have a quantifiable answer to that for sure, uh, but what impact are we making as much as we can at this point at the laboratory or R&D scale that we are? So I don't have a number or a I can't put a finger on a number per se. In, in terms of um, have we sort of impacted or inspired other people? Yes, I would like to say yes. I have seen a lot more companies come up in the Asian space, at least in Asia, Southeast Asia, looking at what we have done and also trying to help the, like, for example, we are a cultivated seafood company, but like Sonali mentioned, there are other ancillary companies in this industry that come up with help us with infrastructure or ingredients or, you know, um, hiring even like recruitment, for example. And we have seen that these companies have come up in the last couple of years to help companies like us. And they have told us that one of the reasons we set up was looking at you guys, but like, at Chiok specifically so i think i'd like to think that we have inspired and we hopefully will inspire more people to make that shift and change over time
0: Ah, oh, Sandhya, you're such a rock star um, you're definitely one of my heroes in the space i have enjoyed being inspired by you for five years now and many more to come thank you so much for your time i know you have to leave soon green queen in conversation is a co-production from green queen media and cheeky monkey productions This episode was produced by Joanna Bowers and hosted by me, Sonali Figueres.